Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you're doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're continuing our topic on the topic of salvation, and tip and specifically, this episode is going to be on the topic of grace. And when I was preparing for this, I was thinking that maybe I'll just cover the next topic of faith, but grace moving in our faith. Um, but then it just became so obvious to me when I was preparing for this that grace is literally everything. It is the primacy of, of our lives, our very existence. And so we're going to be covering a lot today. And it's uh, it's grace that permeates our entire lives, especially as Christians. Um, we have the ultimate grace in Jesus. So uh, we're going to go over the definitions. We're going to talk about life itself. We're going to talk about salvation history, Christ, the church, individual Christians, the initial encounter and justification with Christ, and then our lives within and through Christ. And then even talk about the judgment at the end. And then lastly, we'll talk about those that don't know Christ and the grace that move, is moving in their lives and how they can respond to it. So first, a definition. In the Catechism, in sections 1996 through 2005, the, the church has a few definitions of it. Um, this is just a brief overview, but they have a lot more on the topic, especially in the Council of Trent that was in the 1500s during the Protestant Revolution on the topic of justification and grace. So grace our justification comes from the grace of god grace is favored the free and undeserved help that god gives us to respond to his call to become children of god adoptive sons partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life grace is a participation in the life of god it introduces us into the intimacy of trinitarian life by baptism the christian participates in the grace of christ the head of his body as an adopted son he henceforth can call god father in union with the holy with the only son he receives the life of the spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the church the vocation to eternal life is supernatural it depends entirely on god's gratuitous initiative for he alone can reveal and give himself it surpasses the power of human intellect and will as that of every other creature sanctifying grace is a habitual gift a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with god to act by his love habitual grace the permanent disposition to live and act in, a, in keeping with god's call is distinguished from actual graces which refer to god's interventions whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification the preparation of man for the reception of grace is already a work of grace this latter is needed to arouse and sustain our collaboration and justification through faith and in sanctification through charity God's free initiative demands demands man's free response. For God has created man in his own image by conferring on him, along with freedom, the power to know him and love him. Grace is fir first and foremost the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us, but grace also includes the gifts that the Spirit grants us to associate with us, us with his work, to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and in the growth of the body of Christ, the church. There are sacramental graces, gifts proper to the different sacraments. There are further special graces, also called charisms, after the Greek term used by St. Paul and meaning favor, gratuitous gift, or benefit. And then the last thing I'll read from the Catechism is the last paragraph of 2005. Since it belongs to the supernatural order, graces escape our experience and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits. Reflection on God's blessings in our lives and in the lives of the saints offer us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to an ever greater faith and an attitude of trustful poverty. And that's a little bit from the catechism. But another way that I think was really helpful for me that I felt like the Lord gave me was 
that so grace is the unmerited the undeserved gift it's a grace a gift of divine life divine life being key right there so what is divine life it's being uh, so the divine life is the very essence of God, who God is in his very being. God is goodness, God is beauty, God is truth, God is reality, God is existence, God is peace, God is love, God is mercy. And those aren't like attitudes or characteristics of God. Those are, that is him, himself. He is mercy, he is love, he is peace, he is goodness, he is beauty, he is truth. And therefore, when uh, a grace in our lives is unmerited gift of divine life, it's, it's therefore, it's a participation of, of our lives and these um, into the very being, the essence of God. He is the source. We are just participating in what he is in himself. So anything good, anything beautiful, anything true, anything that uh, the existence itself, our life, our breath, when we love, when we extend peace and mercy, all those things that God is uh, in himself, in his very divine life. But when it's operating in our lives, it's grace because he is the source and he is working. It's his grace, it's his love, it's his mercy working through us. We're just participating in what he is. And we are made in his image and likeness. So God speaks and he blesses, he gives life, he gives goodness, mercy, peace. So we're called to do that. And of course, uh, even with our words, even with with our actions, um, because we are called, and scripture talks about how we can, our, our even our tongue, the words that we use can bless or curse because we reflect the image of God. So we are called to send blessings, to be God-like, right? To be made, to, to be put back in that proper image of God that he created us in. So the gifts we've been given can be used for good and bad. Uh, a person who is physically beautiful, beautiful, for example, they can use that beauty for bad. They could be lusted over, they could use it for pride, honor, for using other people, or it could be used for good to allow their beauty to be a channel to attract others to the beauty that's inside them, to a life of virtue, to to, to lead, to, to honor other people, um, and to lead people to the ultimate beauty itself, which is God. And that's good. That's grace. Think about relationships, friendships, family. Those can be used for bad, to abuse, to hurt, to rule over and dominate, to use uh, others for our, our own good or for our own advantage. Or it could be used for the good things, which is to love, to will the good of the other, to grow in virtue, to laugh and experience things together, to pick each other up, to encourage, to challenge, to console. Those are good things in a relationship. Those are participations in grace. That's grace. And another way to think about it would be is when we're cooperating with the natural law or with love. If we're not acting in accordance with natural law or love, then that would be disobedient to grace. We're not cooperating with grace. Another way to, and the other, the flip side of it would be to obedient to the natural law, to the to love itself, and that would be an obedience to, to grace, because the natural law speaks of God Himself, but also He put everything in proper order. The very nature of our being speaks of how things should be and how things are in proper order for the greatest happiness for us, because we are made to participate in true love, and true love is in proper order, and then. Lastly, just in summary of all that, in essence, we know we're cooperating with grace when we use things in our life for the order in which they were created to be used, and we know we're thwarting its end or not cooperating with grace when we use it contrary to what its natural is uh, intended for. For an example, we've talked about this before, is our sexuality. It has to be geared towards the, the what we're created for, to its proper end, its proper um, use, which is love and life-giving intimacy between a man and a woman uh, in, a, in a 
one flesh union of marriage. And I've said often that we can know all these things through the natural order, but Jesus enlightens and heightens. We say this because Jesus doesn't contradict reason. He is the source of it, but he lifts up our reason, so our faith lifts up our reason to see even clearer the truths of life that have already been revealed. Um, and then we think about grace just in our lives, creation, our very existence, the breath we breathe right now, our health. Our entire life is filled with grace from our moment, the moment of conception to the end of our life here. In Acts 17, 28, it says, uh, quoting an, and it, it's actually quoting an extra biblical text and it says in him we live and move and have our being creation the very breath that we breathe it's a gift of God it's grace it's literally the breath that we're breathing right now the very our health the way that we can talk our very existence is a gift of God we didn't have to be here we didn't have to be existed but out of love and goodness we were created so that's a grace when you look at salvation history um, before the time of Christ it all pointed to Christ and uh, in Christ, it's not the written law anymore, but it's grace, the law of love. But everything in the Old Testament, even throughout salvation history, was pointing to that fact. So the choosing of Adam and Eve, the marriage covenant, that's grace. The choosing of Noah and, the, and establishing the family covenant, that's grace, unmerited gifts of God. Choosing of, the choosing of Melchizedek, who is the priest king of Salem, which means peace, that offered bread and wine as a sacrifice, who prefigured Jesus as the priest king of the heavenly Jerusalem that would offer a sacrifice of bread and wine. That was grace. He was choosing somebody on it, not on, based on what he did or what he's done. That's grace. Choosing Abraham and giving him the promised land in Genesis 15, giving him a promise of the kingdom and then the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, and then the promise of a worldwide blessing in Genesis 22. Those are all grace. Undeserved gifts of God. Choosing a human being um, to reveal himself to. Choosing of Isaac. Then uh, God choosing Jacob and Israel, the 12 tribes, choosing to free Israel from Egypt, choosing to feed them with manna from heaven in the desert, the choosing of to establish the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle worship, the Ark of the Covenant, the Word, the, the blood of the covenant and the, and the tribal covenant. Those were all gifts, all graces, undeserved to Israel, right? They didn't earn to get us to um, any of those things. And then after that, God sends judges. Then he anoints King David and all the kings and the queen mother within the covenant of the kingdom and King David and all, and all his successors and uh, the kings and the queen mother. Those were all graces, gifts of God, unmerited help, unmerited gifts of God. Then after that, he sends the prophets, unmerited gifts of God. And then we reach the new covenant in Jesus, the fullness of grace, the time of grace that he brought in, that he established, that it would be no longer us following uh, a written law, but the law would be written on our hearts that we would be in the law itself, in Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of the law in love, that we would participate in that. So just a summary of last episode where we touched very, on this very briefly, but I think it's a good overview and summary. So grace, unmerited gift of God. You can do nothing to earn God's love and you don't need to work your way to God because God can only reveal himself to you. And then uh, to to say that he, you have to work to earn God's love or earn your salvation, that's a heresy called Pelagianism that the Catholic Church does not teach and actually uh, condemned in the very beginning of the early church. That was something in the first few centuries. And uh, even the, the church itself in the documents of salvation, the phrase of faith and works are nowhere in church documents. It's, it's grace through faith working itself out in love. So any, and we'll see that any charge against the Catholic Church against like uh, people will think that the church teaches that we have to earn our salvation or faith and works or uh, um, all of those uh, 
you know, all those things that we have to earn our love or earn God's love or earn our salvation and it's not God's doing, it's our doing. Well, one, that's all false, but two, any charge against the Catholic Church actually says that what she teaches is too strong about God's grace because nobody teaches about God's grace like the Catholic Church does. Everything is a gift. In summary, John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no one, no one has salvation outside of the grace of Jesus. And then Philippians 4, 13, in Christ, all things are possible. So without Jesus, nothing is possible. With Jesus, all things are possible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever listens to him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 1 John 4, 14, the father sent his son as the savior of the world. James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. All the parables of Jesus, he's the steward of the feast, he's the good shepherd, the one who searches for the lost sheep, he's the one that searches for the lost coin. It is God who is seeking us. He's the one that is moving in us, through us, in us, and seeking us out to find us, to restore us, to bring us back, to redeem us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So essentially, what's it saying? We did not earn the grace that is in us. God's, uh, this is God's doing, his grace that he did for us and our salvation, our initial salvation. It's only God that can seek us out and reveal himself to us and for us to receive that gift. But also the gift that's in us that is continuing in good works is Christ himself. It's God himself. It is a gift that we did not earn. But God through St. Paul right here tells us that we should walk in them. First John four nineteen. we love because God first loved us. In Galatians 2.20, St. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that was a summary of last week's episode of just touching on all these different parts of our lives. The initial uh, part where it's only Jesus that seeks, he's the one that comes. It's only in God that we can do anything. It's in him that we move and have our being. And, uh, but we continue with that grace that is operating in our lives continuously and even more so because now we have the grace of Christ before our, our lives have to be completely changed because it is Christ's uh, work, his, his grace that's living in us. So it's Christ that is doing it, but we participate directly in that. So as new covenant Christians, as Catholic Christians, our entire lives is a life that is called to be transformed by grace. The grace of Jesus, Jesus's blood, shed has infinite value as he is god nothing you've ever done is outside of his mercy he is the one person in the entire universe that can reconcile god and man as he is god and man himself he is god of all eternity taking taking on human flesh and even becoming sin that he would die for the ungodly romans 5 6 says jesus he purchased us to bring us back into the family of god he made us adopted children adopted children back in the first century you could discard a natural child but an adopted child when you say that is my son there is nothing that could ever revoke it you were obligated to and this is what jesus has done he's purchased us back into the family of god he's adopted us he's redeemed us restored us forgiven us he's given us life to give us love to give us a family so the cross is the power of christ goodness triumphs over evil in christ's cross God's love triumphed over our sins on the cross. 
God, when he died, he swallowed up death. And when he took on sin, he swallowed up sin. Through these things that, that triumphed us, God triumphed through his uh, being, being vulnerable and being triumphed. So that's the good news, that it's unfathomable love. The bad news, the great that shows on the cross, the crucifix, is that the greatness of our sin. Our sin was great. God's love is greater. Just today, St. Augustine, um, in this daily reading that I read, uh, said this, Our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The font came down to thirst. Jesus acts. He moves. He fights. He battles for your life to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the powers of sin, Satan, death, and hell. God is perfect goodness. He doesn't create bad things such as sin and destruction, but he redeems and he allows bad things to happen to bring a greater good. And we see that first on the cross. That's primary example number one, that through God's suffering and death, he brought life. The most evil thing ever is that human beings killed their God, but God triumphs. And then he brings the greatest good that will ever come out of anything in our lives is our salvation. So think about like the situation that we're in right now, COVID-19. God didn't create this like he didn't like positively will this to happen but he, it's always in his it's, it was in his permissive will for this to happen because he allows it to happen because there will be a greater good there will always be a greater good and that's grace C.S. Lewis quote he said this in 1942 Satan says I will cause anxiety fear and panic I will shut down businesses schools places of worship and sports events I will cause economic turmoil but Jesus says I will bring together neighbors, restore the family unit. I will bring dinner back to the kitchen table. I will help people slow down their lives and appreciate what really matters. I will teach my children to rely on me and not on the world. I will teach my children to trust me and not their money and material resources. See, the world sees physical suffering as the worst type of evil or suffering, but as Christians, we know that the worst type of suffering or evil is from sin. Moral evil that separates us from God, which happened with Adam and Eve. They suffered. Uh, they severed themselves from God and they experienced a spiritual suicide when they sinned. A spiritual death that's worse than any physical death. And we've talked about before the profound nature of suffering, that our suffering has value. It is redemptive for ourselves and for the, for the world when we have our sufferings in union with, cruci with our crucified Lord to fill up what's lacking in the suffering of Christ and to share in the Christ's glory provided that we suffer with him as Christ tells us to pick up our cross daily and to even rejoice when we suffer and have afflictions and are persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Physical suffering entered into the world because of sin, but now God has transformed it so now even physical suffering itself can lead to a transformation of, of a Christian, of, of a man and a woman to become more Christ-like. So what's worse, physical evil or moral evil? Moral evil because it cuts us off, it's sin, it cuts us off from God himself, which is a spiritual death, which God has shown us and revealed to us that that is way worse <laughs> than any physical suffering that we could ever have. So when you think about creation and redemption, those two graces, I was thinking about this recently and I feel like this is helpful to put it into perspective. We've heard people say to others when they are hurt that they would have been better off if that other person never existed. I think a lot of times we can think that the same, that the same thing that God thinks of us that, you know, he's just like looking at us and he sees this broken world and he thinks that, you know, it would have been better if all these people never existed in the first place. And why did I even have to bring them into life? Because he didn't need us, right? And we think he's sad, he's suffering. <laughs> but God 
He is infinite, sufficient, needing none of us. His creation, including us, tells us that even our infinite differences between us and him somehow is still good and worth it. The fact that we still exist, he's telling us that we're still worth it. He wants to share his life with us. He even dies on a cross for it. That's grace. And through God's crucifixion, we see that no matter what happens in this life and all its brokenness, a greater good will be brought about and all life is a gift and we are infinitely loved. In the context of salvation history, when we were given this gift of participating in God's divine life, his grace, his attributes, which is why we were created in God's image to be rational creatures that have the responsibility of participating in the things of God to create, to love, to work. And then sin entered, which was acting contrary to reason and the divine life. And God's entire salvation history is calling us back to be restored in that image of God, to bless instead of curse, to love instead of hate, to be free instead of a slave, to forgive instead of slander, to give life instead of murder, to give peace instead of fear, to give innocence and purity instead of lust and shame and guilt. And it's all God's work in us and through Christ Jesus in the fulfillment that we would be restored in that nature to put on the mind of Christ, to renew our thinking, to repent that metanoia, to change our mind, that our hearts, our minds would be completely transformed into its original state and not even its original state, infinitely greater than even if Adam and Eve never sinned. We have even a greater gift. God is so good to us. When we think of uh, now in the fulfillment of the Christian era, that was the grace that is provided in Christ Jesus. Think of the grace in the church. The church is not, the Catholic church is not what we have done or do or did for God. This is all what God has done and continues to do for us. It's the gift through the church that we even have scripture, that we have seven sacraments, the truths of the teaching of the church on faith and morals. Those are gifts. When you think of the seven sacraments, what does Jesus say though? He says, you go baptize in Matthew 28. He says, you do this in memory of me in Luke 22. When it's the feeding of the 5,000, he says, you give them something to eat. You feed these people. And John 20. 22 through 23, he says, you forgive sins. Whoever sins, you forgive. Whoever sins, you retain. Um, Those sacraments that give us life, those are direct participations in what Christ has come to do. So he's saying, you go do these things, but it's going to be Christ that's doing it through you. Um, The truth on faith and morals, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, when he gives Peter and then the apostles the power to bind and loose, the keys of the kingdom, he says, you have the keys. You have the power to bind and the power to loose. You, this church, is going to be the pillar and the bulwark of truth, St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is not something that we're doing for God and we're guessing. It's God working through the church that he established. The church is a direct gift of God. It is God working through us. But as he says in each of those places where he says, you're going to do this, you do this, you do this, it's because God works through the ministers of the church. He works through us. That is his His will. He doesn't need to do that, but he establishes it like that where uh, even in the sacraments, the minister will say, this is my body. I absolve you. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why does he use the first person? Because it's Christ through him that's forgiving, that's baptizing, that's giving his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Christ says in Luke 10, 16, when they hear you, they will hear me. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago is what caused our salvation to be possible. He is the source of every grace of salvation. How does it be, but how does it transform us here and now? Which is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes actual what Jesus made possible. 
He does this through the sacraments. They make the past saving action of Jesus present in our lives right now. God could have just said, you're saved, you're forgiven, but he didn't. He took on a body. He lived, he suffered, he died, he rose, he ascended. We are saved in that body. We are saved through his body. And how do we experience salvation? Through our body too. A transformational experience never just happened in our mind. Loving another person doesn't make you married to them. Feeling like you're married doesn't make you married to that person even. But actually marrying them is what makes you married to them. It's the grace of the sacrament. So what actually happened 2,000 years ago can happen actually to us today. What happened to me 2,000 years ago actually happened to me when I was baptized. The grace of that salvation happens when I encounter Jesus in the Eucharist, when I hear that I am absolved of my sins, when somebody goes and gets the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, when uh, a, a couple is married, when a priest is is ordained. It is Christ in them that is working through them that's giving them a uh, deeper grace to participate in his life that he established. So these things don't empty the cross of Christ. It's precisely because of the cross of Christ that we are empowered to do such things. If you want to know that you're loved, look at the sacraments. You're saved from lovelessness. You're saved from lifelessness. And in the sacraments, Christ instituted, you're given life, you're given love, you're given hope, you're given a family. It's one thing to say that I love you, right? I can say I love you to anybody, to the mailman, to the to um, my mom, my dad, my friends, my family, and I use the, that term a lot. But it's proven by someone's actions or their presence. So the way I express my love to my wife, Napoli, is completely different. It's on a whole different level than anything else, right? It's one thing to say it, but it's actually an action to show how much we love. So how do you know that you're saved? How do you know? Do you feel it? You might or you could feel it, but it's not based on feelings. In 2 Timothy, St. Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift you have been given through the imposition of my hands. He's talking about that day that Timothy became a priest because St. Paul ordained him a priest. Priests aren't made a priest when they just get a degree or they really felt it that a certain day. They were made a priest the day the bishop lays hands on them, just like Paul was talking about to Timothy. And it's the same way with all the other sacraments. The day I was baptized was the day that I was saved. The day that I received the Eucharist is the day that I was given a new transformation of life, that I received my bridegroom, that I received my Savior, my Lord. The day that I went to confession again is the day I was, I was forgiven. These are concrete ways that the Lord wants to work out our salvation because he's entered into history that we would our history would be transformed to be his story so how do you know that you're loved look at the sacraments it's continuing the god's grace it's a a pure gift that you did not earn god just continues to show i'm here i love you i'm for you i'm fighting for you i'm with you when you look back at the israel that israel in the wilderness they were hungry god gave them manna which literally means what is this they didn't even know what it was but they ate it for 40 years every day And after a little bit, the Israelites complained about eating the manna. It kept them alive, kept them from starvation, from death. It's a free gift from God. He didn't have to do it, but it was a sign, a proof that God loves you. And they couldn't care less. They saw it as a burden. But we do the same thing with the sacraments. God keeps proving his love again and again, and we complain. John 6, the new and true bread from heaven, Jesus' flesh for the life of the world. Unless you eat this flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You must do it. It's a gift from God for eternal life. We look at it as a burden and imposition. We become indifferent about it. And we become indifferent about love. We're so hungry that we forgot that there's food for us. We're so thirsty that we forgot that there's drink for us. We're so hurt and broken we forgot that God wants to save us, forgive us, 
in confession. So in all the sacraments, in the very gift of the church, the teachings of the church, it is not something that we've done, but it's a free gift of God that he has given us. We encounter that very love of Jesus in the sacraments. He saves us from lovelessness, from lifelessness. God wants us to know how loved we are. He wants us to live this life. He wants us to have no doubt that he loves us. And that is the gift of the church and the sacraments.